Welcome to chapter 10 of Unfuck the Poor. This chapter, titled, Oh, Bitch, 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 is available as a PDF along with the entire book, Unfuck the Poor, at askaleftist.com, where we tackle burning questions posed to the cultural left, such as, why do you want to cancel everything, and why do you want to murder babies? That's right, we entertain such questions and answer them in the only way we know how by getting to the cultural root of such questions and exposing the implicit bias nestled within. After all, it's one thing to ask these questions rhetorically, and a completely different thing to explain why these questions persist in the ether of the far-right, near-right, and alt-right psyches. There are only a handful of chapters left, and I really hope you've learned something from this book, whether it's the fundamentals of recycling currency or how to conduct a coup, this podcast is here to help. Anyway, on to the next chapter. Unfuck the Poor, Chapter 10. Oh, bitch, bitch, bitch! Solutions, like problems, are messy. What Krugman's economics does, and indeed what all economics does, is supply a rationale for whatever bullshit has to be explained. This is unique from other bullshit in other disciplines because it's all just made up. You can't make up the digestive system of a bullfrog. I mean, you can make up names for organs, and you can make up names for diseases, and come up with words for bodily functions, but you can clearly see that from mouth to anus, a bullfrog's digestive system functions in a set, predictable way. Don't get me wrong, the sounds we make with our mouths and the meanings we give them are all made up, but at least we can agree that food goes in one part of the bullfrog, and then what used to be food comes out another part. In the case of economics' final chapter, economics has to explain how money goes into and out of countries, that's capital flow, and how those countries write their ledgers, that's the balance of payment. What it doesn't have to do is explain coups in the World Bank's and IMF's economic restructuring program for emerging markets. Oh, economics can use all the words it's invented to explain all of these things, but those words do a poor job of explaining the real-world effects on humans. I can define those economics terms in less than a sentence, and just did, but it took a very, very long time for me to explain how we choose which countries get to participate in the market liberalization Ponzi scheme and how that Ponzi scheme leaves emerging markets in a debt and devaluation spiral, not to mention in direct contention with outside foreign investors. However, I can distill it to a much simpler point. Poor countries with cheap labor can only be exploited if their governments lift financial restrictions that allow foreign direct investment and get tax breaks for opening facilities within their borders. In other words, exploit the poor. Economists can make this sound very, very dull and very, very necessary and even mandatory and even worthy of praise. After all, capitalism has the power to liberate all of humanity, so it must be very complicated and set within rigid parameters. Economics also goes on to explain how markets manage their interest rates, which is complete bullshit because markets don't self-correct and interest and inflation are all made by some decision somewhere at some point in time by some human in a position of power. All things considered, the rules of economics are not bound by nature because they are not natural rules. The rules of economics are human constructs that can and do mean whatever they need to mean and can prove whatever they need to prove. I'm only spending any amount of time on the Krugman and Wells textbook right now because, to pat myself on the back, I have done a significantly better job explaining, quote, international capital flows in terms of the supply and demand for funds, end quote, by providing real-world historic examples of nations needing money, being loaned money, being exploited for more money, and basically addressing all the things that definitions don't, can't, or won't do. I am very, very proud of myself. But a key problem remains. 
The world does not operate according to economic definitions. It has no permanent or stable economic force guiding it. We simply add definitions as we go along, make predictions, fail, and then the important part, we keep doing the same thing over and over with bigger and bigger failures. We can move forward both in this book and as a global civilization without first qualifying things on economic terms. They are, after all, bullshit. Corporations make more money by moving factories to emerging markets because they can exploit foreign poverty levels better than they can exploit their domestic poverty. And yet, in the case of the U.S., Many Americans defend the rights of companies to pay non-living wages to the lowest paid U.S. workers because to raise the minimum wage would be hazardous to U.S. employment in general. This I interpret as basic bullshit, but it is the argument of some Democratic senators who voted against a $15 minimum wage in March 2021. Joe Manchin from uh, West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, Gene Shaheen from New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, John Tester from Montana, Tom Carper from Delaware, and Chris Coons also from Delaware. Not one of them used any actual economic lingo to explain how raising the minimum wage to a level that is still below the minimum wage of half a century ago at inflated rates would be bad for working Americans. Not one of them used any kind of rationale for their votes, at least none that would qualify as rationale intelligible enough to reprint. So I'm going to use a tried and true research tactic utilized by the greatest philosophers and historians of all time. I'm gonna scroll on Reddit looking for someone who has regurgitated the quote, I understand economics, talking points. Oh look, I found one. Why did the eight Democrats vote against the minimum wage? Abilene Orders responds, because it is a terrible idea and will do nothing but cause inflation. The rise in the cost of goods and services will more than offset the increased wage, giving people less buying power. This means they will be worse off than before. It will also increase worker replacement by kiosks and other methods of reducing the workforce, meaning fewer jobs and greater dependence on the already dramatically overstressed welfare system. Businesses that rely on labor will close because they are no longer profitable at all. Restaurants, stores, places where minimum wage workers work that already run on a slim profit margin will slash their workforce to the absolute minimum. I'd like to see Krugman and Wells compete with that. I'm going to assume that were you to give a microphone and a squatty potty and a half-full gymnasium to any of the Democratic senators who voted no on the minimum wage increase, this would be the general context of their impromptu basic economics stump speech. Such concision and matter-of-factness is what I meant when I said the world does not operate according to the economic definitions, it has no permanent or stable economic force guiding it, you know, two pages ago. One could just as easily argue that raising the minimum wage would entice record high numbers of immigrants to come into the country looking for work, that the higher minimum wage would cause workers in somewhat decent paying jobs to find lesser skilled work where they can exploit the minimum wage to make more, that enforcing a minimum wage and eliminating the need for tips would cause restaurant workers to earn less, and workers who do menial labor don't deserve $15 an hour. And of course, one would be both wrong and an asshole for pursuing any of these assertions. They are all predicated on the assumption that higher earners somehow possess an innate understanding of economics that lower earners do not. This chapter is not about the minimum wage. I just want to make a point, so I'll just make it. But first, I have to give you another definition. Reservation wage. In short, the reservation wage is the lowest price you'll accept to do a task. In order for the statement made by Abilene Orders, or anyone else for that matter, to be accurate, 
economics would have to follow the underlying rule that fully autonomous and rational humans should and do behave in a certain way in certain situations. In other words, what we think is rational is the way things ought to be and is indeed the way things are. In other other words, the very problem with economics is that, because the order of operations in Abilene Order's answer seems rational, it seems correct, more or less, and for the politician and any outside observer who thinks they have a rudimentary understanding of economics, the explanation holds water. I encourage you to go read the introduction to this book again, specifically the quote from Nature that I use to demonstrate that I indeed take economics seriously regardless of how I portray it. Hell, I'll just copy and paste and recite it for you. Quote, because they deal with systems that are highly complex, adaptive, and not rigorously rule-bound, the social sciences are among the most difficult of disciplines, both methodologically and intellectually. They suffer because their findings do sometimes seem obvious, yet equally, the common-sense answer can prove to be false when subjected to scrutiny. End quote. In the case of the minimum wage, the common-sense answer, one of dollar dominoes in which a hike in wages leads to a hike in price and a drop in employment and a hike in welfare recipients, is the wrong answer, made worse by an overly simplified understanding of supply and demand, which can be manipulated in the extreme, resulting in a supplier subjugating the demander. In this specific case, we are given two victims of a minimum wage increase, the corporation and the state. The corporation will, at worst, go out of business because they can't afford to pay their employees, and the state now faces strain from over-reliance on welfare. And it's all because you wanted a livable wage, you insufferable peasant. In such a concise takedown of minimum wage increases, there is no room for the third party involved in this equation. The worker paid the minimum wage allowable by the state. One of the side effects of a minimum wage in general is the establishment of the reservation wage, which sets a limit for how much money people are willing to accept in exchange for one hour of work. This is, in some circles, referred to as an entitlement wage, which is typically a derogatory phrase when you think workers are being paid too much or feel, you know, entitled to higher wages or that there should not be a minimum amount of money that you should pay. The wage reservation acts like an auction reservation. A worker won't accept any work below a given rate. It values a human's labor time at a set dollar amount, presumably to compete with the value of a human's efforts while not employed. If a human can earn, say, more than $7.25 an hour by doing an activity other than a specific job for an employer, the human should do that other activity. For humans with few prospects to earn money independent of an employer, the minimum wage is the rent paid to workers established by the state, and because it is a state mandate, it is viewed as an entitlement. So, its effects on employers outweigh the effects on the worker, because we have by now established the fact that economic utopia is completely unencumbered by the state, and therefore any input, including wage standards, is seen as a detriment to natural equilibrium between the corporation and its rights to revenue generation. Because if we paid attention to the effects on the worker, then it might seem like we actually see them as humans. Take, for instance, babies. Teenage birth rates, which dropped from 54.4 births per 1,000 women in 1996 to 18.8 .8 births per 1,000 women by 2017, are reduced by a factor of 1.1 to 1.3 fewer births with every $1 increase in the minimum wage. An increase in minimum wages that causes a $1,000 gross increase in annual income is associated with a 12-gram increase in infant birth weight. 
the effects on younger, non-white, unmarried mothers are higher. Healthier babies born to mothers making more money would, and I'm just spitballing here, not lead to a demand for more welfare benefits. A parent's wage increase of $1 per hour on average over a child's life is associated with significantly higher net benefits for the child, including 1. For children aged 6 to 12, a 10% increase in the probability that the child is in excellent health. For children 12 to 17, probability rises to 11%. 2. For children aged 6 to 12, a 29% decrease in the probability of the child being in poor health. For children 12 to 17, it is a 57% decrease in the probability that they will be in poor health. And three, for children aged 6 to 12, a 20% decrease in missed school days. For children 12 to 17, the number of missed school days drops by 42%. Of course, we aren't talking about babies exactly. We're simply talking about the indirect but very significant effects of raising the minimum wage on the value of the dollar itself, which assumes a direct or accelerated growth in inflation on the cost of goods compared to wages. That's a whole lot of words. What that all boils down to is the general assumption that a 10% increase in the minimum wage would equate to a 10% increase in the cost of goods and services. But that's bullshit. Little empirical evidence exists to support this one-to-one wage-to-inflation theory, though you can find enough bullshit wage-hike bad findings to regurgitate over and over. That is, if for some reason you're dead set on absolutely not raising the minimum wage, plenty of papers exist to tell you that at some point, after the minimum wage increased, then unemployment did also increase, with the number somewhere below 1% or that inflation did occur, but it didn't occur in a one-to-one ratio with wage increases. One of the major pro-wage hike books in modern history is Myth and Measurement, The New Economics of Minimum Wage by David Card and Alan B. Kruger, published in 1995, which, sure, if you need some kind of justification for increasing the minimum wage, it's great. All I'm really getting at here is this. There is a lot of back and forth over whether or not the minimum wage should increase. Meanwhile, those earning minimum wage in the U.S. do not earn a living wage. If you need an economic model to get your head out of your ass, I can't really help you. But on the assertions that welfare needs would increase, employees would be replaced with kiosks, and inflation would go up, there are enough studies using math and graphs to explain that this simply isn't the case. More to the point, the knee-jerk inflation response to the wage hike topic is exactly the debate you're supposed to get distracted with, because otherwise, you'd be discussing things like how poor people are affected by subsistence wages, which would be unpleasant for people who dislike thinking about poor people. Okay, say you're not sold on my argument that we should just increase wages so we at least have a living wage. After all, you hate poor people and you would need a really good justification for wanting them to be paid more. Okay. Daniel Aronson's price pass-through in the minimum wage from 2001 found that restaurant prices rose with wage increases, but not one-to-one. Hamburger prices increased 0.12% to 0.16% for every 1% increase in minimum wage. Nguyen Viet Quang's due minimum wage increases cause inflation from 2011 found that, no, minimum wage increases in Vietnam did not cause inflation, and I quote, In the most recent increase of the minimum wage in May 2009, although the nominal minimum wage increased by 20%, the real one decreased by 3% due to high inflation in 2008. Secondly, 
Previous increases in minimum wages are found not to lead to high inflation, so a reasonable increase in minimum wages is a result of inflation, not a cause of inflation, end quote. And for what it's worth, the 1996 analysis, Who Gets What? from Minimum Wage Hikes, a re-estimation of Cardin Kruger's distributional analysis and myth and measurement, The New Economics of the Minimum Wage, <sighs> by Burkhauser, Couch, and Wittenberg found that, sure, Card and Kruger were onto something, but, quote, they ignore traditional measures of family economic well-being and fail to focus on the inability of minimum wage increases to target the working poor, end quote. In normal speech, raising the minimum wage doesn't do enough to help the working poor, so let's go with that. As I said several pages ago, I did not come here to talk about the minimum wage. Seriously, I was making a completely different point. As long as your first instinct when discussing social policies with economic impacts is inflation or deficit or cost, then you may as well bow out of the conversation altogether. Whether you're for or against the topic, inflation, deficits, and costs to the corporation have nothing to do with it. Economic factors may very well be affected by social policies, but economic concerns are secondary to the issues of poverty, the dignity of the working class, the health of children, and systemic inequality. Economic concerns must be secondary to social concerns as a matter of existential primacy. We created economics, so why do we accept its inherent inequality? Not only accept it, but enforce it further, using economics itself as a justification. That is the knee-jerk, quote, we can't afford it. Mentality has always been the primary response to solving inequality. And there have always been complicated graphs and indecipherable mathematics to prove that we can't afford our own dignity or dignity for the poor, or that the poor even deserve it to begin with. We call basic human rights entitlements to dissuade people from demanding them. If for some reason you can't build a dignified life under the rules of capitalism, that is your own fault and you're not entitled to assistance. But the minimum wage has another deeper, more philosophical consequence. What does it mean for a human being to rent herself out for any dollar amount per hour or per day? There is no valid economic model that addresses wage slavery, the philosophy of the working hour as a voluntary relinquishment of all rights not protected by law for a fixed amount. There is only philosophical discussion to be had, and it has been had to near death from Frederick Douglass, a freed slave who worked for wages and came to see them as nearly the same thing, though wage labor is only slightly more dignified, and Abraham Lincoln, who was an abolitionist who saw wage labor as another form of slavery and advocated for the rights of workers to unionize in order to maintain autonomy, to Noam Chomsky, an anarcho-syndicalist who views labor for anyone but oneself as a form of oppression, and Walter Block, an anarcho-capitalist who sees the ability to sell oneself as true freedom. I have nothing particularly poignant to say on the topic except that these philosophical discussions are far more relevant to the issue of minimum wages than whether one, the corporation can afford to pay them, or two, they cause inflation. It is a public discussion that seems unlikely to occur in any meaningful way, which is a symptom of a more entrenched economic problem in general, the ability to see any of it as negotiable or changeable or a matter of real human interest. As long as we frame the human cost in economic terms, capitalism retains its superiority to humanity. As evidenced by everything I've written up to this point, we have some major economic problems leaking out of the United States borders and into nearly every nation on the planet. Most of what we believe about economics is essentially worthless. No one involved in the functioning economy actually believes in supply and demand, relative value, or trade equilibrium. Hell, 
we don't even have a basic understanding of how economies developed other than the idea that we have always had them in one way or another and we are still trying to figure them out. But the modern solution has little to do with economic theory and everything to do with hegemony, a word I have deliberately avoided this entire book until just now because it is a very serious word that requires a lot of supporting evidence to earn credible use. Hegemony is leadership or dominance, especially by one country or social group, over others. The way the world operates is at once complex and quite simple. The dominant state writes the rules while subordinate states follow them. All the details, from currency standards to cultural norms, are dictated by the ascendant state, which creates uniformity and hierarchy domestically and leads to conflict abroad, particularly where outside influence is resisted. I've covered these in depth in the cases of Guatemala, Iran, and Mexico, but my coverage on these cases is not only incomplete, but it doesn't even represent a fraction of the conflict caused by United States rulemaking abroad. Direct action by US military forces have resulted in millions of deaths, and that is not an exaggeration. Scholarly estimates range from 20 to 30 million global United States caused murders, from 1 to 1.8 million in Afghanistan. Uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski acknowledged the US's role in luring the Soviet Union into invading Afghanistan in 1979 by supporting anti-Soviet opposition. Beginning in 1975, 200,000 out of an estimated 700,000 total East Timorese population were exterminated after Indonesia received implicit permission from President Ford and Henry Kissinger. God, that guy. In 1991, a US air assault on Iraq that lasted 42 days killed an estimated 200,000 Iraqis. UN sanctions on Iraq in 1990 were responsible for an estimated 500,000 child deaths. The Iraq-US war, the 2003 version, has resulted in an estimated 654,000 deaths according to Johns Hopkins University. And I could go on. In Guatemala alone, the estimated death toll from civil war, a result of the whole, you know, banana thing, is 200,000. Equal to these deaths is the displacement of real human people, especially the poor, in the interest of privatization and exploitation of resources, including the very real resource of human labor. The introduction of the dollar abroad has severe consequences for those forced to use it. For some, it generates a cycle of constant debt and currency devaluation, and for others, it creates poverty where it did not exist before. By ascribing a dollar value to everything, the belief that some things are inherently worthless becomes a fundamental doctrine. Without fail, the poor and the very poor are the subject of ridicule or, worse, simply ignored. In the worst of cases, they are murdered. Solutions are not immediately apparent, but they do exist. For traditional economists, the utopian future of unregulated laissez-faire capitalism is the ultimate solution. The only way for real economics to work is to unleash its potential on the world. The traditional economist has had his day, and it is over. For centuries, we have deferred to those who sit back and ponder the way money changes hands, and seeing poverty and wealth, have decided that the wealthy possess inherent talents that speak to their ability to lead and to guide, ignoring the fundamental fact that wealth is accumulated at the expense of those over whose lives their money exerts control. Centuries of such leadership has led to today's financial system that serves to insulate a dwindling opulent minority from the rest of us, while at the same time exposing the rest of us to its harshest effects. For the non-traditional economists, like modern monetary theorists, a new economic order seeks to focus on the state as a large-scale employer whose purpose is to pick up slack when the economy inevitably dips. For the global currency leader, the United States, this is easy. 
the dollar has whatever value we need it to have. The government controls its distribution, and therefore deficit spending is neither inherently good nor bad. It just is. In recessions, the government should act not like our households, but like the autonomous government it is, spending money in deliberate ways to keep people employed and to keep the circulation of money going. This is too permissive of the economic conditions that create catastrophe in the first place. It merely suggests a political band-aid for the inevitable failings of market liberalization. However, it does solve the problem of protecting the poor from the effects of inflation. While capitalism is not salvageable, its descent is controllable. For revolutionaries, the ongoing conflicts, environmental, political, spiritual, military, economic, of the 21st century clearly point to the final days of capitalism. When tensions are so high, when wealth disparities are so great, the inevitable outcome is revolt. But revolution requires submission to power equal to or greater than the power being revolted against. Militias are organized hierarchical structures that, as a default, are no more justifiable than the structures they seek to replace. There is justification in organization and leadership in times of transition, but there are very real problems with understanding when exactly a transition is complete. See Cuba. The public is only energized for so long before real needs must be accounted for. Stability, peace, sustainability, autonomy. For the rest of us, we naturally seek leadership from one place to another, especially when the path is unknown. It is easier to engage in lazy participation, voting, consuming news, philanthropy, than it is to invest energy into a cause with an unknowable outcome and to devote any significant time to it. More than that, it seems the world is full of people doing the work already, that there is no place for us within that order. This is a philosophical roadblock I ran into as I neared the end of this book. I am an average person with no social standing, no background in economics, no real qualifications or credits to my name, and yet here I am writing on a topic better discussed by people infinitely smarter than I am and with no guarantee that anyone will read it. Why devote hundreds of hours of my life to a dead-end research project? Well, because, frankly, it's more empowering than passively reading other people's interpretations of economics when none of it makes any sense. My point is this. It is our individual responsibility, not the responsibility of intellectuals, politicians, or economists, but it is our individual responsibility to confront the real-world effects of policy and opinion on our daily lives. How do we intelligently engage in discourse against established thought without becoming anti-intellectual, anti-science, or anti-expert, what exactly constitutes justifiable opposition to authority and illogical refutation of expertise? It's a hard question that stands as a philosophical impediment. I think, first, it requires an honesty that experts do exist, that collective bodies of knowledge have relevancy, but in that relevancy, we must also be willing to assert that its relevance is granted only so long as humans are engaged in it. Take climate change, for instance. The problem and solution seem so extreme as to be unbelievable. Completely switching from carbon-heavy energy and industrial processes seems impossible. Popular counter-logic contends that one, the earth is simply too big and powerful to be affected by human activity, and two, converting our entire way of life to be low carbon is so revolutionary as to be unrealistic. On the subject of earth itself, this planet is indeed enormous and powerful, but it is also incredibly delicate with every natural system affecting another. Humans have successfully brought about the extinction of nearly 500 species since the year 1900, a fact that is, in the words of scientists who study these things, evidence of, quote, initiating a mass extinction episode unparalleled 
for 65 million years, end quote. On an unrelated but related note, we know that car exhaust is essentially poison, even if we only understand it anecdotally, like people commit suicide by running their cars in closed garages and breathing in the carbon monoxide. We know that pollution in general is out of control, that plastic as a matter of physical waste has left no surface of earth untouched. We can, at the very least, admit that we are breathing poison and that humans are quite capable of affecting the living systems of earth itself. Both of these conclusions can be reached without quibbling about carbon dioxide, carbon tax credits, and climate change itself. As for the second point, consider that the fossil fuel existence in which we live is barely a century old. The switch to oil consumption was no less revolutionary, dramatic, or complicated than a transition away from oil consumption will be. We should be at least honest enough with ourselves, internally, in the quiet place where there is no judgment, that the reality of ending up in a serious place where climate change is something we have to argue about is fundamentally a scary place. No one expected this topic to come up, not ever. That we are afraid of acting on it, that the future will be fundamentally different, is an uncomfortable prospect to face. It's okay to be unsure about it, but there is no logical argument against facts, even those sub-scientific facts that we can legitimize with our own eyes. I can go suck a tailpipe now and see the effects of carbon monoxide poisoning. I can fill a plastic trash bag with plastic just walking down the street. There is only the comfort of not having to deal with something in real time, and that has an enormous trade-off with the immense discomfort of a future world that is uninhabitable for our grandchildren. The same can be said for economics, not in principle but in practice. To assert that the philosophical study of economics is at odds with its practical application requires similar diligence and understanding. To my mind, I have not written a book on my economic opinions and my need for developing an understanding of a science where I had none. The facts point to a reality incompatible with economic scientific rigor. Time and again, the benefits offered by economic theory produce negative consequences for those whom, theoretically, market capitalism is meant to help. Robert Skidelsky asserts in his book, What's Wrong with Economics? A Primer for the Perplexed, that the only defensible purpose of economics is to, quote, lift humanity out of poverty. It follows that the aggressively widening disparities between rich and poor through post-war policies is an indefensible outcome. In other words, what we have done, what the dollar has done, is wrong, if not morally, then practically. And there exists no internal fix for those wrongs. Where there is a focus on deficits and inflation, there will always be a guiding authority acting through self-interest or self-preservation. Our loss is their gain, and the inverse is also true. These are the natures of surplus and deficit, accounting measures, and little else. Solving our economic problems by relying on the same principles that have caused those problems would be akin to creating a diesel-powered carbon scrubber that sucks out as much carbon as it produces. On the defensible purpose of economics, I would also like to state the not-so-obvious that for such a simple sentence, there is a great depth of context. What exactly is poverty? And are we to use economic definitions and principles to achieve the goal of lifting people out of poverty, or have we created an entire economic system that is incapable of doing so? What alternative economy have we not imagined that would achieve what should be a universal goal? There are serious obstacles to overcome that have little to do with exchanging money. 
Late-stage capitalism has played out much as Karl Marx said it would, with an increasingly divided and nearly impossible to unify working class. America is unique in that it has successfully divided the working class by skin color while simultaneously creating false unity among members of differing income classes on the basis of race, thereby preventing cohesion in collective interests across class lines. Racism, hatred for the other, is a fundamental obstacle that is presently exploited by those who see power in numbers and have identified a racial divide as being perhaps the only safe means for preventing numbers significant enough to provoke systemic change. Collectivization is impossible if groups retain primitive animosity toward outside groups and if public rhetoric stokes that animosity. The state has been entrusted to protect the vulnerable, but the state actively seeks to maintain a racial divide. We call it economic policy, but it is thinly veiled discrimination. In the absence of state order, who protects the vulnerable? This is a matter of collective responsibility, though effective solutions remain unclear. Armed resistance has historically been met with an over-militarized state response. The art of war has been mastered through decades of target practice on the poor, and the poor disproportionately have more melanin than non-poor. And in the U.S., this, too, has been mastered. Social unrest is classified as criminal when demonstrated by minorities. Whites can commit more violent offenses and avoid punishment or even receive praise when they target minorities or those of opposing beliefs. The near-sainthood defense of 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse compared to the character assassination of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin is the disparity I think of most often. Rittenhouse committed murder and was defended. An image of Rittenhouse cleaning graffiti was used presumably to highlight his good intention. Meanwhile, Trayvon Martin was vilified post-mortem. His marijuana use was seen as somehow relevant to his murder, highlighting his inherent criminality. These are specific examples of how we have been trained, and it is a sort of training, to respond to violence when perpetrated by people of certain skin color. Roberts and Rizzo identify seven uniquely American factors that feed racism at home. One, categories, which organize people into distinct groups by promoting essentialist and normative reasoning. Two, factions, which trigger in-group loyalty and intergroup competition and threat. Three, segregation, which hardens racist perceptions, preferences, and beliefs through the denial of intergroup contact. Four, hierarchy, which emboldens people to think, feel, and behave in racist ways. Five, power, which legislates racism on both micro and macro levels. Six, media, which legitimizes overrepresented and idealized representations of white Americans while marginalizing and minimizing people of color. And seven, pacifism, such that overlooking or denying the existence of racism obscures this reality, encouraging others to do the same and allowing racism to fester and persist. We cannot divorce economic principles from their social consequences. They are at once ingrained and inseparable. If we are to make a truth of one, we must be willing to make truths of all. The ancillary consequences of economic policy are more observable and more predictable than their supposed immediate financial or market consequences. That many Americans deny racism and climate change with equal fervor should be evidence that, on the whole, we are simply choosing to ignore all that is uncomfortable to acknowledge. The features of life itself, the existence of jobs, hobbies, travel, sickness, families, drought, pandemic, violence, they're all folded into our mainstream lives. We cannot separate ourselves neatly from this reality to choose an uncertain one. 
But this is a fiction. It is a fiction we in the mainstream tell ourselves every day. I, me, personally, the narrator, the writer, I have a job that pays well. I have free time to pursue my interests. I have extra money for hobbies and nice clothes, a car, a house, expensive internet games for my daughter. But I am also miserable. In the evenings, I search through job boards and wonder if I made a huge mistake choosing my degree. I wonder if anything will ever be fulfilling enough to maintain my interest, anything that is other than researching, writing, discovering new things I didn't even know existed to be discovered, which is a thing that doesn't pay the bills. The mainstream is a thing in which I live, but which until very recently, I refused to acknowledge was literally killing me. I personally, me, the narrator, the writer, I went to the brink of mental collapse and beyond, attempting suicide in 2018. That was exactly three years ago today, October 20th, 2021. The comfort of daily life is not in how orderly it is, but in our willingness to be subservient to that order. I find no comfort in it, and am unwilling to passively agree to its terms. While every detail of our daily lives cannot be neatly integrated into and solved by a revolutionized economy, there is little to suggest we have neatly integrated or solved them with our present economy. So, are we to reject everything about present life and revert to something primitive? There are billions living comfortable lives who won't get on board with that. Then, how to maintain a level of comfort while extending those benefits to those who don't have them? Devalue the numeraire to take away its power? That's worth exploring. We do, after all, outnumber the opulent minority. We have seen the historic reliance on maximum pressure campaigns by our own government in attempts to control the actions of foreign leaders. Sanctions, embargoes, trade wars, seizing assets, economic warfare, all of which overwhelmingly punish the poor as a matter of course. We see similar pressure campaigns at home in our government's willingness to unleash the National Guard on Black Lives Matter protesters in Washington, D.C. in the summer of 2020, and indeed the willingness of law enforcement officers to use their vehicles against protesters. We see it in the low-intensity warfare of the criminal justice system, a structure that eliminates an entire subset of the U.S. population from the workforce and makes their incarceration profitable. That also functions as a system of debtor prisons through the cash bail system. We see it in the tiptoe approach to climate change and ending pointless wars. When votes are split between two centrist candidates, we cannot realistically claim to have fair elections. It is ironic, then, that the election of Donald Trump in 2016 was the first U.S. post-war election that was actually fair, as it departed from the carefully curated choices of neoliberal opponents. Unfortunately, we blew that chance by electing an even more suicidal neoliberal demagogue. Trump's 2016 election was a colossal waste of effort, but it does provide hope and warning. Americans have the very real but slim hope of electing a non-psychopath who won't exploit the rest of us for gains. But if half the U.S. voting age population doesn't vote and the voting half is split by ideology, then what's the likelihood of real change taking effect and how far away are we from complete degradation of the capitalist experiment? I have been left most unsatisfied after years of reading expositional nonfiction where, without fail, writers prohibit themselves from making suggestions for how to enact change or offer suggestions with such vagueness, always frustrating to read Chomsky's generic call for direct action, 
that it hardly counts as advice, but I understand the rationale. To assert one's opinion on a framework for change means to risk being completely wrong, for such suggestions to be proved wrong or impossible. This is no different from any other exercise. People will ridicule your ideas no matter how sound. So, I would like to be more specific without coming across as 1. An asshole. 2. A demagogue. 3. A crazy person writing a manifesto. Or 4. A self-help dipshit. So first, let's do a definition of direct action. Direct action is a thing you can do now with the resources you have and the people you know. In the case of GameStop, the people you know can be defined as loosely as the users you interact with on a website. A thing you can do is a mass purchase of stocks using the resources you have, money. The response from the investor class is an indicator that the degradation of the capitalist experiment is only a handful of powerful direct actions away. The investor class doesn't, after all, have unlimited wealth. It has massive wealth and future earnings are near limitless, but in the present moment, its wealth is finite and unstable. And per Andrew Lady, most of them are unintelligent and undeserving of their positions. They are outnumbered and they are not smart, no matter how many graphs they show us. And this is our comparative advantage. Our primary and immediate resources are time, technology, and peer groups, and we are becoming increasingly aware of the value of all three. Take, for instance, Roblox, my daughter's favorite online gaming platform. I've already explored the natural inclination for children to create their own economic values in an artificial setting, but this does not exist in a vacuum, nor is it completely artificial. The rise of online game streaming via services like Twitch reflects our growing reliance on wide net peer groups for entertainment, support, and monetization. The number of YouTube views for game streamers backs this up without needing a reference. Just go to YouTube. But time, technology, and peer networks are not limited to gaming communities. Platforms like GoFundMe, used most depressingly to help people pay their medical bills, and OnlyFans, sex, cater to our philanthropic and voyeuristic tendencies through the medium of the dollar. The entire social networking site Reddit, with its seemingly infinite number of subreddits devoted to the most niche interests, is indeed a massive peer network suited to the specific task of helping people share and discover those most niche interests. Wikipedia is, for better or worse, the go-to website to learn about nearly anything that has ever happened, any idea that has ever been had, or any person, animal, or thing that has ever existed, real or fictional. It also, because of course it did, served as the jumping-off point for many of my in-depth diatribes. Of course, in time these platforms will evaporate entirely or transform into something unrecognizable, and this paragraph will ultimately come across as archaic. But this is the consequence of dealing with the here and now. The evolution of our online collectivization holds potential for addressing many of the problems created by our archaic system of inequality, not solving them, but at least addressing them. We're going to put a pin in online collectivization and return to it. We are, according to some social economists and radical geographers, at the end of capitalism. The financialization of markets in general, the evolution of gold-backed to oil-backed to treasury-backed currencies, illustrates the narrow path that wealth accumulation has created for itself. In the 21st century, tangible assets have lost ground to financial products that generate money simply by being bought and sold. Over the last 50 years, the finance sector has doubled its share of gross domestic product from 10% to 20%. 
Fernand Braudel describes the shift in economic share away from makers and producers and into the hands of financial players as the end stage of an economic system. Quote, At all events, every capitalist development of this order seems, by reaching the stage of financial expansion, to have in some sense announced its maturity. It was a sign of autumn. End quote. If we are in the autumn, the winter brings wider inequality and unrest. The 10% rise in GDP share over the last 50 years has resulted in more global economic crises than the last two millennia of human existence, and our current timeline is equaled, maybe, by only the general crisis of the 17th and 18th centuries, when the entire globe underwent major economic, demographic, and climatic shifts that resulted in widespread government collapse, more wars than any period in world history up to the 1940s, and a period of drought, flood, famine, and cold affectionately called the Little Ice Age. While particular areas of the world underwent more monumental shifts than others, France at this time was a hot clusterfucking mess, virtually no place on earth went unaffected. Such chaos is inevitable if we do nothing, and we have so far been willing to do absolutely nothing. Direct action, therefore, must aim at the sources of our economic problems, which are relatively easy to identify. Our numeraire is a debt instrument. Elected and unelected officials represent a fraction of the total population and therefore do not work in the interest of the public majority. Equity is hindered by superficial structures, and we are, in general, willing to be passive in favor of comfort. The last is perhaps easiest to address because it requires the least amount of resources. This was chapter 10 of Unfuck the Poor. Let's unpack some things real quick. That was most certainly a philosophical look at the world at large, nearly devoid of any economic lessons, but that is precisely the point. As we close out Unfuck the Poor, economics must no longer be discussed in terms of debt ratios and trade balances. But instead, it must focus on distinguishing between the perceived benefits of our economic model and the realities of daily life. To be blunt, citizens of the first world live curated lives. Nearly every success and failure has an economic component. Education has less academic merit than economic merit. Those who are first in their families to graduate college are, by popular opinion, on the road to greater economic success than their parents. In other words, we celebrate the promise of money and the rise from poverty. We do not, as a culture, value the pursuit of knowledge as much as we value the pursuit of money. Turning a critical eye towards this curated existence is the next step in our understanding of economics, and it leads us into our next chapter on safety, comfort, and passive cruelty.